Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, a political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. I'm Ray Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur, and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan filmmaker and liberty portal producer hey everybody welcome back to the liberty portal podcast another wonderful week here in bozeman montana i think it's negative three or five degrees or something like that i've got uh the usual suspect david rand political strategist and philosophy nerd with us how are you david doing great thank you joe awesome we have Henri pellerin libertyportal.com founder and editor back with us how are you Henri? great as always yeah awesome and we've got kyle mack who you've seen on the podcast before, behind the scenes doing, uh, you know, research and related roles for us today. So if you hear a voice out of nowhere, that is the voice of God. That's just me. <laughs> uh, today we've got a lot of fun, interesting topics to talk about. Um, we've got a national divorce in the news. Does this have legs? Russia has suspended their participation in the latest, or excuse me, in the last standing nuclear treaty with the United States. What does that mean? We'll get into that. And many more things. Before we do that, please do subscribe, follow, and uh, and like this video if you're watching on YouTube or anywhere around the internet. Uh, we do appreciate it. It helps us kind of get this podcast off the ground. We're coming up on episode 10, you guys. Can you believe it's been that long? Two digits. Woo! We're going on double digits, baby. <laughs> Look how far we've come. I think we should have a party. Maybe a little birthday cake or something. I like it. Yeah, okay. let's do All it. Right. We'll, let's do we'll a make thing. it happen. We'll have a thing. To start things off, we're going to respond to a comment. Uh, David here is getting into the comment sections on our various social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, and he's duking it out with the trolls. Not saying this is particularly a troll necessarily, uh, but we do have one person, uh, Jean Vu 3 if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is calling out Cy Hirsch on his Nord Stream 2 uh, expose, saying, quote, it's not an article, it's a blog. His source was called The Source. Dude has no evidence, but just speculation. Someone else follows that up and says, Cy Hirsch has been slipping since his 70s. He's 85 now. His stuff on Bin Laden's death was way off. It's not a substantive article. And one more, it's not a reputable article. It cites one source that remains completely anonymous with no credibility. It's basically, trust me, bro. David, what do you say? Yeah, so I think this, these are reasonable objections, right? I mean, if you just said... It, so it sources nothing, right? If it was totally made up and there was no nothing there, I mean, that's a possibility. The question is how likely it is. We've got to deal with probabilities, not possibilities, right? So the probability is you have a guy who is one of the most reputable journalists covering the intelligence state for, gosh, since the 1970s. How many decades is that? 40, five, 50, four? 40. A lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot of math in this room. So that depends on what part of the set that alone should give you pause right immediately you ask is he reputable and then second to that like is is the logistics here do they make sense the biggest challenges i haven't seen isn't that he doesn't soar he doesn't name his sources naming your source in talking about the intelligence state is a huge problem yeah, for nobody, any journalist nobody does that right right well i mean people i mean in the in the the highest standard is where you have someone who goes on the record of course sure that anchors the story it's a good thing for journalism when that happens uh, it makes the story far more, uh, you know, believable in many ways. But the important thing to understand is when you have active people in the field of intelligence, naming their source is a huge problem. 
it ends their ability to give you more resources that might be able to actually draw out the case. And I've actually been reading uh, his autobiography, his memoir. I don't know the difference between those two things, but yeah, anyways, uh, he calls it. Would you look up the difference between an autobiography and a memoir? (laughs) I got it. (laughs) But the, uh, the, the question uh, from the very beginning where we're talking about the, uh, the My Lai massacre or uh, Watergate, he was involved in the Watergate reporting alongside uh, the two main reporters from the Washington Post, uh, to many other things that happened during Vietnam, uh, to what happened with Abu Ghraib. And each one of these steps we're we're relying upon our deep state (laughs) uh, professionals who have a personal relationship with Seymour. He then gets that information from them and says, I will not tell them who you are uh, in order to protect his resource. Now, the Supreme Court has said, even the Supreme Court has said, protecting your source as a reporter is critical to freedom of the speech, or freedom freedom of speech and freedom of the press. If we uh, if we just say it can't be, you know, yeah, in order to have an article, you need to have the government say, oh, yeah, of course we did that. And, of course, the government denies everything that is going to, well, that, that is up to when it does super, super secret intelligence operations that harm our allies. Exactly. And it, and it seems like a case of a clear double standard here where if a mainstream media outlet names an anonymous source it's totally acceptable because it's in line with the narrative as soon as you have someone like Cy Hirsch who has this very credible long-standing background in journalism come forward with the same thing because his story does not align with the predominant narrative about what's going on here doesn't align with the government's take on what they want out there he's attacked and maligned you know, broadly across the mainstream media. That's right. So, and it's, and this is a dialogue that goes, or a a dynamic that goes all the way back to the Vietnam war in his memoir, before he did this reporting, he mentions how, you know, people who were pro-war always come across as objective. People who are pro-state always come across as being the ones that are, you know, dealing in the facts while the people are anti-war who have to deal with the shroud of the U S intelligence state, they are seen as being biased. And that's not, that's just not how it works, right? I mean, those people have opinions too. They're not objective. Those folks support what's going on and they're using that, uh, using objectivity as a way to shroud themselves. Uh, and then, and then of course, you know, you can have real criticism of, of, uh, Hirsch's, um, reporting here, but it, it, I think basing it on how many sources he has, because it doesn't say I used one source in it. And of course, if you're using multiple sources, what you would do is say, I'm using a source, Right. Because that way you protect your other sources. This is this is not new, you know, method in journalism. This is actually a very old method in journalism in order to protect it. If you have confirming, which he has always done, why wouldn't we? And and we we know now how Watergate peeled out because it started out with an initial report that over three years of reporting became the thing that took down Nixon. Right. This takes time especially when it comes to a deep state thing. And that was something where the burglars got caught the night they did the burglary, right? So it isn't even, a, this is a way harder thing than Watergate. It's way, it's more like Melai, uh, but even Melai had a, uh, um, a fall guy to come out and say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm this, that. we don't, we don't have that in this case. Do you think part of the problem here is that a lot of the folks who are probably commenting on a TikTok video aren't old enough to have an understanding of the legacy that a guy like Cy Hirsch brings to the table to back up his claims. That's right. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like I walked in just knowing who he was either. I had to go back and be like, this name sounds familiar looking at it. And then, oh yeah. Okay. And kind of getting reorientated to who he was when this story broke because of how important it was. Uh, and, it, and obviously it's being ignored by a lot of the mainstream media. 
Um, this is a huge opportunity in the space of independent media to draw attention to the story, anchor it into, okay, we don't know this is for certain fact. We don't have the smoking gun. We don't have material evidence yet. But we have an anonymous source who's saying this to a very reputable per- reputable person who has the relationship he does with the intelligence community because they know he will protect them and they know that he's going to tell the truth because that's what he's been doing for 40 years now right and to come in and say that oh well he's slipping and he's not as good as he once was because he's old i mean i think if we're going to apply that logic we need to apply it elsewhere like say to the president (laughs) savage anyways had to dunk on biden i'm sorry uh well let's let's talk about what's going on in russia so so we have uh Putin here giving an address. I, th- I believe this is very closely um, close in time to Biden's visit to Kiev as well. Um, but Putin coming up on national state TV in Russia saying that they're going to suspend their membership or their um, uh, involvement in the new START treaty, which is the last remaining nuclear arms treaty with the United States. What are the implications here? I mean, uh, both Biden's recent comments in his trip to Ukraine and, you know, Putin giving this speech, it just, to me, it's very disheartening. It's, it feels like we're inching ever closer to a really uh, catastrophic World War III. Um, I don't know. I don't know when and if that will happen, but it's, you know, we just had this uh, great anti-war rally. And then the very next day, you know, Biden's on a plane to Ukraine and telling uh, you know, tweeting out that we're going to fight to the last man. And it seems like they're just hell bent on, on getting us into a, a, a major entanglement, which we're already in. Um, but we're just sliding even further and further into it. I mean, I just saw another headline that says there's now, uh, you know, softening, uh, rhetoric around the idea of not sending jets to Ukraine. So now like, I think it's coming out of the UK that, Oh, well, there's more interest in maybe sending fighters over there. And yeah. it's just like, you guys, like, the world is watching these global leaders literally just drive us into this pit of potential World War III, and it's kind of ridiculous. All right. So when you do World War One, for example, in your history class, it makes it look like Archduke Ferdinand dies. The next day, everyone went to war. But actually, it was a part of an escalatory spiral. Escalatory spirals are very common. You turn a phrase that you use in foreign policy all the time. It's when you have a diplomatic problem, and then someone escalates, and the other person says, well, now we have to escalate, and then we have to escalate. And how do you interrupt that spiral. This seems like a new phase of that spiral. Uh, we can obviously go back and see that these arms treaties require states to allow other states to check on what they're doing right. in this order to is, increase trust. This one is specifically to allow the U.S. to audit Russia's nuclear stockpile and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. So Russia's saying you can no longer do that. Right. right. And, and this, uh, interestingly, has something to do with covid where when the COVID thing happened, they said, like, we're going to stop doing this because we're afraid of infection. And that was probably a pretense. Um, this is this is Russia behaving badly, to be clear. Like, they should, you know, waving our finger at Putin should be uh, allowing these inspections because this drives the entire world closer to World War III and nuclear devastation. It creates an, a potential for an arms race, right? Absolutely. They're over there making as many bombs as they can, and we're, we're probably doing the same. That's right. Uh, additionally to that, we, but but the U.S. State Department has to take their ounce of responsibility in how tensions with Russia have increased with their policy over multiple decades that have caused this. We were the ones who tore, tore up the short-range nuclear ballistic missile treaty during the Bush years. We were the ones with with uh, Trump who refused to re restart that. Uh, so many steps. I mean, the the amount of steps that you can that we've taken 
to specifically draw up tensions with Russia uh, and make it harder for anyone to get to the table and be able to say, no, no, the most important threat to the world is nuclear war, period. And if we and if we don't have some kind of change in our diplomacy at this moment, uh, I'm really worried that, you know, this escalatory spiral is only going to take to the next stage. And what would that be? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unfuck the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. You're very right that there there is a dynamic where Putin is probably responding in large part to the West, what they're doing. And I don't think it's a coincidence that his statement comes juxtaposed to Biden's visit to Kiev. Uh, meanwhile, Biden hasn't yet visited the site of the one of the worst uh, environmental disasters in the United States in recent memory, East Palestine, Ohio, um, which is still a problem. You know, we're still getting terrible news out of there. And on top of that, now people are starting to, I should say, pundits are starting to talk about what went wrong. How do we prevent it in the future? And the conversation is coming back around to regulation as we know it always is, right? The market mm-hmm. sol- uh, causes problems and the government fixes them, as you said last we episode. We predicted it. We predicted it. We're, we're clairvoyants. <laughs> Who could have saw this coming? Who could have seen we it coming? We did. Yeah. So, so Henri, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this? Like, I know that you've done a bit of research around the train um, regulatory space a, a little bit. I don't want to oversell your credentials yeah, yeah. here, but but what are your thoughts on this? Well, I I, I don't know. It, it makes me think of, uh, you know, Mises basically pointed out this, this very phenomenon about how, you know, whenever government attempts to solve a problem, it'll inevitably make it worse. And then that new problem will be blamed on the market and it'll bring up another round of regulation. And, it just keeps on going that way forever and ever. I mean, we've had a lot of regulation in the train industry for a long time. Um, and it's, you know, uh, I think the the story of James J. Hill is what comes to mind. A lot of people may not have heard of James J. Hill. You know, he was around during the time of the so-called robber barons. And um, he was a, a, a train tycoon. He had the, uh, the Great Northern um, Railway and... He was competing against the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific. You know, they were building their railroads with government subsidies. They were very incentivized. Uh, they, were, they were paid by the mile. They were given land grants. They were given loans. A lot of the land that they were given, they would sell for their own benefit. Uh, they were basically incentivized to build long, circuitous tracks. They weren't, you know, very concerned about the quality of the rail because if they could build it extremely cheap, they could keep more of the money for themselves. Their executives were were stealing money from the companies, which you would never, you know, uh, James J. Hill would never have had the incentive to steal the money from his own company, you know, and um, they were spending more of their time focusing on essentially lobbying efforts in those days versus spending the time focusing on building quality rail for economical purposes. Contrast that to uh, how James uh, J. Hill would uh, would build his railroad. Essentially, the way that he built his railroad was he was very focused on, you know, the highest quality rail, shortest, most economical routes. He was uh, constantly trying to lower his price to the consumers. 
and he he did things that essentially built communi- communities across America. This saga led up to uh, a, a massive round of regulation in the train industry. This is how we got the Interstate Commerce Act, which created the Interstate Commerce Commission, uh, which w- got heavily involved in not only regulating rails, but uh, trucks and and uh, airplanes. And that led to a lot of these uh, regulations are either still standing or have been supplanted, essentially evolved into new regulations, which which still exist to this day. Um, well, this brings to mind some interesting things because, like you said, we do in our in present day find ourselves in this environment where the rail industry is heavily regulated. In fact, I was reading a little bit about it, and they've they've basically set it up such that um, in September of 2020, I believe, um, the Surface Transportation Board wanted to institute a situation where they would cap rate increases for rail carriers, right? Um, saying that if they had adequate revenue, if they were revenue adequate, uh, which is arbitrarily defined by this board, that they would uh, effectively say, well, you, you can't make any more money than that. So what incentive does that provide to a rail carrier, David? It's a price ceiling, and price ceilings create a lack of investment. Uh, it creates a, a, a disincentive to move your own money back into improving your product. So uh, whether or not I actually doing the research for this, I didn't actually find whether or not they ever implemented the price ceiling. But even considering a price ceiling could mean a lack of investment because what you would do as a company, knowing that the uh, a federal board is thinking about implementing a price ceiling in order to control costs, you would, of course, stop investing <laughs> immediately, hold money in case you need it. Uh, so even that could be a, a way to think about why wasn't there sufficient investment in replacing parts and making sure there's a high quality. Uh, we know that there were train, you know, substantial logistics deregulation in the 1970s and 80s, uh, most of it during the Carter uh, presidency. And uh, while airlines got a lot of deregulation, uh, so did railroads. Railroads didn't appear to get as much, mostly because they're more heavily unionized. Uh, so I, I think the... Um, the processes in which we've gone through for railroads, I, we're, we're still looking at the the landscape and trying to figure out, okay, what what caused this thing? What was the condition was it this? And then also I have to understand that industrial accidents do happen. And 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 then uh, everything after that, like, did they do the right thing? Was it actually a control burn? Was it an accident? You know, are they actually, is there a cover-up? All those things are also just as important as the overall landscape because just saying we're going to wave a magic wand and, and make it so that this never happened because we make some systemic change might not be possible because we live in a reality of risk where real things do break down and accidents do happen. Things go wrong. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I hear the argument sometimes from, from certain folks that say that, oh, these companies are just in search of profits. Therefore, they're going to cut their costs. They're going to cut their maintenance as much as possible in order to make the maximum amount of money. But if you can just raise your prices to your customers to say, hey, if you're going to put your cargo on my train, I'm going to charge you more because there's more demand or I have higher maintenance costs, then you don't have to cut those costs. And I, I think it's, you know, it's a fallacy to think that a business owner wants to let their equipment decay just to make more money because that's a very short-sighted thing, right? You want that equipment to be functional well beyond you know, its, its useful life if possible, 20 to 50, maybe even more years for rail equipment. I don't really know what the useful lifetime is. But as soon as you cap that, like you said, all of a sudden, they do have to start cutting maintenance costs because they're not making as much money. They can't charge their customers a fair market rate. Um, I think it's interesting to pivot slightly. What is the downside, if any, for Norfolk Southern, the, the rail carrier responsible for the East Palestine uh, spill, to be responsible for their own cleanup? 
Is that a conflict of interest? Are they going to be incentivized perhaps to not spend the time and the money necessary to do a really good job? Uh, what do you think? I'm not sure. I think I think in the current regime with the current rules, there might be perverse incentives, right? Because right now they currently pay the EPA a whole bunch of stuff to do this job, and then they're going to have to do it too. Um, the EPA supposedly has the rule of trying to of actually doing this, uh, but then having a private company do it, maybe it's not their comparative advantage. Uh, it's hard to say that that's actually a good outcome or not. On the other side of it, like we said last time, this is a violation of property rights fundamentally. So should they pay? Yes. Should be the ones that clean it up? I'm not sure. Uh, should they compensate and to make sure it's cleaned up? Absolutely. I think that should be the ideal. Uh, the question is, is, does that even make sense in the current regime where you have the EPA saying, here are all the rules? Actually, there's a perverse incentive to regulation too. Per regulations create the incentive to do the bare minimum. If you're in a state of freedom, you have the incentive to assess your own risks understand what's your, what the potential bad outcomes are, and then anticipate those things and meet the consumer where they're at or, or, or prevent you know, uh, unintended consequences. In a regulatory environment, you say, what do the regulations say? And I'm just going to meet that standard. So the regulation might not been a, might not been the right regulation. It was impossible to know beforehand what the right regulation was. Uh, additionally, that the so, so once you have that perverse incentive, they are now covered legally because they complied. right? So are they also liable when things go wrong? when they're also liable to comply with an unending amount of regulations. We've set up a, a very perverse system for that. That doesn't actually work. The ideal situation would be to deregulate these things, turn down the amount of control, and increase their liability for anything that goes wrong simultaneously. And you can't just have one of those. A corporatist, like a big business, supply-side, Republican type, he's going to say, get rid of the regulations and also get rid of the liability. Right. Right. And that's not what we believe. What we believe is increase the liability so that People have easy access to courts to quickly hold accountable companies that do wrong. And and to that, I think that we're maybe not even necessarily best off putting the oversight in the hands of the EPA, because as of just about a week ago, I believe they were in support of reducing the liability of Norfolk Southern for this this spill. So hmm. there obviously there there's some some buddy buddy stuff going on behind the scenes there. It seems like I don't have I don't have the facts, but um, it's very interesting. And to pivot back to what you were saying, Henri, I thought one really interesting thing from your article about uh, James J. Hill was the contrast between market entrepreneur and political entrepreneur. Right. I mean, that, can that you, was can the you whole point. The, so the whole point of this article, you know, uh, Tom DiLorenzo included James J. J. Hill as one of a number of examples of uh, what you were just saying. You know, so the the real robber barons were the ones who were usurping. Uh, taxpayer money through government largesse and using it to benefit themselves and providing crappy services and getting away with it. You know, the, whereas the, the, the great entrepreneurs who, who really built America were the guys like James J. Hill, who, you know, were, were taking their own risk and, and being extremely productive and, and providing services that, that people highly demanded and needed and, and really progressing our economy to, to new levels, you know, like one of the things that he did, um, you know, he, he would, uh, he invested in a shipping company and he used his rail to support a shipping company and, uh, increased, um, ship, uh, exports to Japan by like sevenfold over a like nine year period. Um, the other, the, these other railway railroad tycoons had no incentive to, to think like that. They were, they were, you know, too busy whining and dining politicians. Um, and, didn't really care about actually being productive economically. Right. Cause their revenue came from lobbying. Whereas a market entrepreneur's revenue comes from 
pleasing yeah. a customer with a quality product right. at a good price. Yeah. Yeah, I find that really fascinating. And that, I mean, this is sort of the, the premise uh, behind Atlas Shrugged, is it not? I mean, and the book involves trains. It does. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. Yeah, Doesn't it, it? There, there's actually a train accident in Atlas Shrugged. And it, one of the great parts of that segment is it really, it, 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 it demonstrates how passing the buck in a political sense is so, is the main ethic of politics, is avoiding responsibility to pass it uphill so that someone uphill can get that responsibility or downhill, depending on what's going on. While in a, in a freer system, the responsibility is on the individual and the individual has to take responsible for what they do. Otherwise, they can't be an actor in that space. Um, and, and how those systems reinforce that ethic and, and how w- we think of this like structures that sit over us or, or are necessarily a component of our social system. But really what, what Ayn Rand is so great about pointing out is that this is actually there's an ethical underpinning to all of this. There's a foundation that's ethics that is the foundation of why we are moving in this direction of greater statism, greater control and things like that. And it's interestingly, it echoes Jordan Peterson. It is our inability to take responsibility for ourselves to improve our lives and improve our world. If we focus on that, the political systems will change. So we focus first internally to change our ethics, our orientation to, am I, do, I, do I exist for myself or do I exist to serve a political authority? Yeah. Right? And, and that, that question of self-ownership and, your implica- and the implications of that are much deeper. In fact, actually, one of my thoughts this week was the underlying idea behind responsibility Responsibility is a verb. The noun, the ontology, right, the philosophy of being is self-ownership. Taking responsibility for something is to embody the underlying belief in yourself that you own yourself and own your actions and own your, uh, own your actions in the world. You can't have moral calculus without that. You can't blame the devil for the thing that happened, right, for what you did. You have to take responsibility for that. And that starts with the ontological belief, the philosophy of being belief that you own yourself and everyone must own themselves in order to have, you know, a moral system or an economical system or a social system that's actually, you know, mutually beneficial. What happens in a social system where you have uh, one person willing to take that responsibility and one person not willing or perhaps a population willing and not willing? It seems like that sort of begets this conversation that we're having today, which is a national divorce, right? Like, do people that have that responsibility have the right to peel off and become their own, you know, secessionist little zone in the United States or become their own country or state? Like, what, how does that work? Interesting segue. I like it. Uh, I'm working on this. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think of it, I think of it a little bit broader than that, not in terms of just politics, but in terms of what ought you do with your life? How should you orientate to your own life? And to me, that starts with what is your ontological beliefs about yourself? Uh, yeah. So as far as for, uh, national divorce, I'm not, I'm not sure how to actually get that across the line there. I'm not following your, uh, <laughs> you're right. 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 I'm sorry. That's I mean, right. I think, I think I know what you're saying. Like should, should, cause I don't, should, wait a minute. I don't see it. Okay. I don't see the difference between right and left as people who take responsibility for people who don't. I'm not saying that's right versus right. left. Yeah, All okay. I'm saying is you have populations of people who feel differently about how their own lives or, okay. you know, their, the way that their communities are run, uh, differently right they, okay. they have differing views on the way they see the world whether that be one of mm-hmm. self-ownership or something else right how, how does this i don't know should, should, should that, that, should that right. no it's okay let's just hard pivot <laughs> <laughs> no no I, th- I think it's fine so like i think 
in 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 the real world where we're at there's there's a dynamic where some people do want to pass the buck and other people you know are willing to take responsibility there's an elitism to that right there's a there's a the best people in a system in a free system the people who are most willing to take responsibility are going to rise to the top right because they're going to be the ones who are going to work the hardest they're going to be the ones who are going to not care about other people's picadillos whether their religion their color their creed uh, those are going to be the folks who are going to have most amount of responsibility in lives and most likely to transform themselves and society. Free systems encourage that, and they encourage a hierarchy of value that's based upon merit because of that, because of the underlying principle of self-ownership that embodies itself in responsibility and then escalates to other systems of social cooperation. Um, and as far as like, should people be able to break away? I, I think it's an interesting philosophical question because what does, what, what does, self, what does sovereignty mean if it doesn't mean my right to say no? Right. If, if you're going to say America is a place where the people are sovereign, but you have to participate, you have to be involved, you have to pay in, then it's no longer voluntary. And it's a, there's a self-contradiction there that we've never really been able to negotiate as a country in our history. I mean, from the very beginning, I'm talking pre-revolutionary era to today, uh, we've never really been able to reconcile how to get to a truly voluntary place where people can participate and, and, and leave with, without the perverse effects of leaving, such as free riders and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of see what you were saying. I mean, I think, yeah, like you said, we ought to have the right to go our own way. If we're in, you know, forget about governments and whatnot. If you're in an abusive relationship, you should have the right to leave, right? If you're like, if, if this is an actual marriage and we're talking about divorce, right? And, and one side says, hey, you're abusing me. You're calling me a racist every day. You're calling me a misogynist. You're trying to make me, you know, comply to all these crazy rules that I don't agree with. So I'm going to leave. And then the other side says, oh, no, you're not. If you leave, I'm going to, you know, be violent towards you. Right. Like that is that that's kind of the dynamic that I see playing out online with with this conversation around national divorce. You know, there's one side basically saying like, hey, look, we have irreconcilable differences. Like we, we should just split up and go our own ways. And the other side is is saying, if you do that, it's going to be war, you know, and, and it's it's it's. I think they're telling on themselves. Well, the hard part is it's already war in a lot of ways, culturally and socially. Like people are as divided and polarized as they've ever been in history. Right. I mean, perhaps except for maybe the civil war. And so I think we find ourselves in a really like at an impasse where it's like, how are we going to, how are we going to come back to the middle from here? Right. Or, or is it really just that there are irreconcilable differences amongst people and we maybe should consider what it would look like if there were, multiple entities instead of one giant conglomeration yeah. of states. So one of the things that I'm skeptical of, and, and I think we have to define what we mean by national divorce. Sure. Because right? if national divorce means is states saying no to the federal government, that could be a good or a bad thing. Plenty of states, plenty of state law is horrifying. Horrifying about it. I, I read it all the time. Um, I'm not convinced that that necessarily means more people will be free and able to exercise their liberty. I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. Uh, the yeah. ends, that said, would it be hugely impactful and important for our foreign policy? Yes. Would it be hugely impactful and powerful for lots of different components of society? Maybe beneficial in lots of ways, possibly. I think just remaining open-minded to what we're talking about. Um, I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene is the uh, good champion of national divorce uh, discourse. I think... Uh, Michael Malice is probably closer to that. Tom Woods wrote a book about it too. Right. So think about it in terms of philosophical, right? I think that's, yeah. that's where, starting there and then say, okay, so what are the implications of this in the real world? 
the real world gets real messy real fast. Absolutely. And it's just like when, you know, we had a we had a historical episode where some states try to secede and the the precedent that we set for ourselves was that that leads to war. And I think that that is probably what we would see again. So I would agree. I think, you know, philosophically, the idea of of separating is very appealing. But practically, I, I see it leading to uh, a conflict that that we would prefer to avoid. But it, it leaves us with with what are the what are the good options? Because I don't see a world in which we can really force you know, these extreme ends to come towards the middle. I don't know that the middle is even a better place. Like I want people to move more towards liberty, not so much the the middle of the left and the right or whatever that means. Right. Yeah. Just authoritarianism yeah. of right. right and left. Well, not to together. mention prosperity. I mean, yeah. the, what makes America one of the most prosperous places in the, in the world, despite our regulations, despite our monetary plan, despite everything else is our large common market of uh, 250 million people collaborating in a single marketplace is is huge. It's a very important component of why we have the standard of living we do. And so you say, it would it be worth it? Uh, because I guarantee you, many states will immediately erect trade barriers outside of their states. If they could do it, they would do it here. In Montana. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, not to mention immigration barriers, things like that, that actually would make Montana more poor. So was that what you want for your kids? What's the point of that? Why would they do that? Oh, they don't want Californians coming in and changing everything, despite not knowing anything about whether or not that's statistically true or anything like that. But I mean, it would it would immediately impact that ability. I can't tell you how many comments of various different populist you know people in Montana saying, "Oh man, the reason why housing prices are so high or Californians, I wish we could just kick them all out of state if we could just keep all these people out of staters from buying assets here, investing here, doing businesses here." They don't say those things. They just say the things that they don't like that these out of staters are bringing on. Right. So it's it's a it's a it's a it's a real I mean I don't know I'm not saying I'm a, I'm not I'm neither opposed nor supportive I'm just saying philosophically I totally get it right yeah. I think I think we should drive our ability to opt out down to the individual to the greatest degree possible that's what makes me a libertarian that said when it touches the ground in real life that's a that's an interesting and whole different question absolutely well, uh, David you also you mentioned Ayn Rand and um kind of this idea of like a binding ethos that kind of informs society, right? I think one of the biggest issues with the national divorce and uh, what's happening right now is that we don't really have a collectively binding ethos anymore, right? And it seems like there's no compromise that can really even be had unless we uh, have some sort of new informed ethos that kind of guides us or a story that guides us. Um, So it almost seems like conflict is inevitable no matter which way you go. So the most peaceful option would be if we can just go our separate ways, right? Theoretically. But, but they're not going to let us. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's the, the problem. That's the yeah. problem. And, and the, the irony, too, is the a lot of the same people who are making comments about like, hey, yeah, try try to secede and see what we do about it, you know, are the same people who are, you know, very pro-Ukraine and wanting to, to defend their right to be separate from Russia, you know, and that was the result of seceding from the soviet union um and so it's it there's i don't know i don't know what to what to add more to that but it's uh yeah it's it's in the news i would push back on the they won't let us thing i mean i think that there's potential there uh obviously there's going to be resistance but i mean just to speak very briefly about this greater idaho thing if you haven't heard about it the eastern part of oregon is very red uh culturally socially 
And obviously the Portland, you know, the coastal area is very blue. And so there's conversation within the Oregon legislature and in the Idaho legislature to peel off that that red eastern part of Oregon and lump it into a state called Greater Idaho. And it's it's got some momentum. A certain number of the counties in Oregon have have voted to approve it. It's got to go through their own state legislatures, and there may even be a federal component. I'm not entirely sure. But these conversations are are going beyond just conversations. It's out of just the ideological what ifs and into the like, well, let's put this into motion. Let's put this into practice. So maybe some stuff will come of it. I mean, we've got, it's crazy to even think we're two years away from a presidential election, but we already have candidates announcing. Do you think candidates are going to have to uh, take a position on a national divorce? Oh, that'd be fascinating. Uh, I would love for that. But but what we're going to, I assume, what we're going to see is a whole bunch of presidential candidates. Absolutely not. That can't happen because. This third yeah, rail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I do think it's interesting. They kind of make the point like the Civil War happened as a, like a natural phenomenon that just happens, right? Like it wasn't a choice. Uh, and that this time, if it happens, it would just necessarily be a national, uh, like a natural phenomenon that would just happen as if individuals wouldn't have to make that decision. Um, but that's another diffusal decision responsibility type, I think, uh, philosophy. Um, I, I think for presidential, we have some really interesting candidates coming up. Um, yeah, for example, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, former governor, and then um, would she won the State Department or UN? UN. Uh, UN ambassador. UN ambassador. Okay. Right. I'll, I'll double check though. Yeah, yeah. Under 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 Trump, um, filing obviously immediately coming out. I think she's the Lincoln Project Republican out of the group. I suspect. Um, I don't see this as being obviously a friendly to Trump sort of campaign. It's going to be very hostile and immediately coming across to try to get the establishment behind her. Yeah. Uh, for those of us that aren't maybe super familiar with the Lincoln Project, what what is that association oh, mean to you? The Lincoln Project was functionally the uh, a bunch of neocons uh, jumping out of- For those Republic. of us who don't oh. know what neocon <laughs> is, trying to get you out of political uh, right, jargon. Right. Oh, okay. All right. So the- <laughs> Uh, neoconservatism is a philosophy about uh, the nature of the state and foreign policy. Uh, I'll also add into there, it has a pretty deep history that stems back to Trotsky. Yes. Um, yes. Back in the USSR. Yeah, ex-communists ex who yeah. uh, came over to America and then, or not only came over to America, but were in America and then converted to conservatism and uh, anti-Soviet Union. And then they brought a lot of interventionism into specifically components of the Republican Party. Very strong during the Bush era is the most recent history of that. Uh, and when you say interventionism, you mean they're just very pro-war and so sort of pro-imperialist, uh, you know, U.S. having military presence around the world, that sort right. of thing. They support U.S. global hegemony, meaning U.S. global dominance over the globe in the U.S. security state. Gotcha. Back 100 years ago, the conservatives were, t uh, were much more the anti-war folk. And it was the rise of the neoconservatives that kind of took over the Republican Party and converted that. It kind of slipped in through uh, entities like the National Review, things like that. James Burnham um, Bill was Crystal. kind of like the father of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so there's there's a bunch of, there was a big movement in the early 2000s that really embedded the conserv the, that part of the conservative establishment as neoconservative. The uh, Bush is huge on popularity at the end of his term, threw a lot of those people out of power, put them in a lot of, but they all went to magazines and think tanks and stuff like that, waiting their, their time during the Obama era. And then no one saw Trump coming and then they weren't really able to get a good grip in that organization other than, uh, what was his name from Fox news? Um, the neoconservatives, I think are going to line up behind Nikki Haley. That's my prediction, mm -hmm. uh, because of her history as a war hawk, her history as, you know, an interventionist on everything from everything. 
So the, the interesting question here is, does that push DeSantis into a more America first direction and away from that establishment so he can box her out as the pro-war mm. person? Uh, and then additionally that if, uh, how does Trump actually react and take up space there? I mean, yeah. obviously she's, he's going to come and she did a terrible job for me and she never showed up to work because she was asleep half the time or something like that. But, uh, but really on a substantial policy point of view, how does foreign policy play out for the Republicans this year? That's a fascinating question because the biggest issue of our time right now Ukraine, and that's what we talk about all the time on the show. How do we actually, how will the party actually orientate towards that issue and negotiate that issue out in the debates? That's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm, well, I know Trump just made a statement the other day calling out the the warmongers and saying that he would put an end to this Ukraine conflict in one day. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's at least good to hear that kind of rhetoric coming from somebody yeah. who's who's got a lot of support. Um, it, it, you know the the Republican uh, race is gonna uh, clearly it's gonna be between Trump and DeSantis. I mean, I don't, I don't think Nikki Haley entering the fray is really all that significant. And it seems to me you might you might know more about this than I do, but it seems to me that a lot of the you know the sort of neocon Republican establishment is throwing their their weight behind DeSantis. And I don't really know you know what his positions are. I think he was in the military at one point, right? Um, so I, I don't really know. He's been a great governor. Um, I don't know what his foreign policy views really are, though. He's terribly, terribly interventionist. But, I mean, it's the kind that you get from being in D.C., right? It's I don't think it's a major part of his focus, unlike Haley, who is, I think, more directly tied into the military-industrial complex, fundraising through them, and and is is more familiar with that world and of the, of the blob. The blob is what I use to describe the— Think tanks, industrial complex, and deep state phenomena in D.C. Um, DeSantis, who is very, who is not good on foreign policy, I agree. A lot of his statements, if you check out antiwar.com, they have some really great stuff breaking down DeSantis' history on this. Uh, Michael Tracy on Twitter has some good stuff on this. Um, was I right about that, uh, Kyle? About which aspect? Oh, um, um, you asked it a second ago, and I, and, I, and I was like, that's it. We're still getting used to having a Jamie. I'm on uh, I'm on DeSantis's like page right now going through all of his stuff and I'm not finding anything wrong with what you're saying. I mean, the classic the classic technique for running for president is don't talk about foreign policy. Right. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's funny because if you watch like the 2000s debates between uh, Al Gore and Bush, they talk about foreign policy all the time. It's everywhere in those debates. But since the Bush era, we pretty much just took foreign policy, put at the bottom of the stack for discussions for president, even though it's the most important office. For foreign policy. Well, that's period. because they've taken the people out of the decision making process. So why would a presidential candidate talk to the public about war? They just do what they want, and we just have to go along with it because we don't have a freaking choice, do we? Here is an interesting thing about DeSantis, though, is that apparently he was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus in right. 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's important to note that the Freedom Freak Caucus Freak. wasn't founded on foreign policy, of course. That like, is true because, yeah. like, there was also a Liberty Caucus at that time, which was like the Thomas Massey crew, right? And so, right. And the other one is that there is. So there's a lot of disagreement. Like Jim Jordan is part of the Freedom Caucus, for example. He's he's a huge war hawk. Um, that guy from Iowa, I'm forgetting his name. So the uh, I, I I wonder. I don't know where they're going to line up. They could go both ways. They could have two candidates in the race for all we know. I mean, I I, I think they might orientate differently, or different or different factions might have it. One might be a Lockheed Martin person, the other one a Raytheon. You know, it's hard to know. <laughs> I'm serious. That's how it's, that's how it breaks down in DC. I'm not kidding. Really? So oh yeah, right? Because there are all kinds of disagreements and some people are more aligned with the FBI, some in the CIA, some in the DEA. I mean, like all there's all kinds of factions that are broken down within that world. Oh yeah. That's 
That's I, I, I didn't realize that wasn't surprising. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think you, you know it, but you kind of just like block it out because you're like, look, the world's not as screwed up as I think it might be. But really, apparently it actually is. So. Well, I mean, it, the when you're running for president, your first job is raise a billion dollars. Right. And who has a billion dollars? Defense contractors. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and other factions that they're going to go to. They're going to go to Walmart. They're going to go to all the all the major players to try to get money. Uh, and that's OK. The question is, is like, are they articulating a vision for America that actually is seriously engaged with the biggest threat of our time? Uh, and, and as you know, you might have a congressperson who's not running on foreign policy. Totally understand. Congress plays a relative low, small role in foreign policy since the 1970s. It's a bad thing. It shouldn't be that way, but that's how it is. So the president, but if the president isn't talking about foreign policy, they're not running for president. They're not running to be king of the world. They should, they should be talking about foreign policy. Yeah. Do, you, do you think uh, Nikki Haley is a, a serious like contender or challenger? Oh, yeah. Yep. She's a woman. Uh, that makes a huge difference in electoral politics. Well, she was definitely putting that foot forward, like as playing the identity politics card right off the bat. She's from the South. About, yeah, she, I don't know. I, I get, I get the feel like she reminds me kind of of like a right wing version of Kamala Harris. Like, I don't. She might check a lot of boxes. I don't think she's got any popular support. I don't think she's got any like ability to communicate a, a, a good message that people resonate with. Yeah, um, well, it seems to me like she's she's trying to do the thing where. You you jump into the race, you get more clout, and she's going to write a book, and you know, make it's a good money. pipeline. Like, it's a good pipeline. I wouldn't be surprised if it's an, if it's a serious race that she does better than we think, because Republican women are also sensitive to voting for a woman over a man. That's a huge variable. Uh, being the only woman in the race so far uh, could could heavily weigh in her favor. Additionally, that she's from kind of the heartland, middle America. She's got the slight southern accent. I mean, those things all play a huge difference when it comes to Super Tuesday. Uh, I think there's a there's a real variable there. Um, that said, there's it's still very early. We have no idea how it's going to play yeah. out. We got we have no idea what the Trump variable is going to be. We'll probably get a dozen more candidates enter the fray between now and you know when when voting actually. Yeah, starts. I mean, you brought DeSantis and he's not even declared yet, but everyone right. thinks he's going to run. Right. right. It's, yeah. it's it seems like the writing's on the wall there, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I, we've also I, got. Uh, I just this... did uh, if one second. Go ahead. I did just pull up some polling of if they're in a four way race right now in a primary between Trump, DeSantis, uh, Nikki Haley, and Pence. They have Trump at forty three percent, DeSantis at forty one percent, and then Haley's all the way down at six percent, mm. and Pence at four. That's probably name identification yeah. though. Uh, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of time. Yeah, and also no, if it's a national poll, you're, you, that's not how presidential. This is Republican are. leaning voters for the primary in a national poll. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that yeah. that's irrelevant. The question is New Hampshire, Iowa, those two states. Like that's where, true. and then and then we have months and months of campaigning and commercials and things like that to get the name idea up. That's and, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's it's worthwhile talking about. It's just from a political strategist's point of view, it's completely meaningless. It's way too early, and there's not it's not the relevant data. Well, in that case, let's skip even talking about uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Oh, well, I do think he's interesting. What I do want to talk about there is something that Kyle actually said. His messaging is on point. Yeah. The okay. way he talks about America and his he's framing his campaign is really good. I'm really impressed by it. I mean, I, just looking at it from a tactics point of view, uh, he's defining, he's asking the question, what is our story as a country? How do you fit in that story? What is our mm -hmm. identity as a country, mm -hmm. and how do we forge a new identity? And uh, being, you know, who he is, a capitalist and uh, someone who's, you know, from the private sector, that can carry some major weight. I don't know if he's a serious contender or not. We'll see. But the uh, I do I do want to highlight that part because I think if you're a candidate in this year, uh, it is a huge win uh, to be able to talk about that. And he, he's talking about it from a way that's compelling to conservatives because he's specifically contrasting secular religion with civic religion. 
Uh, he's talking secular religion in terms of wokeness and climatism and things like that versus, you know, you know, traditional religion, which is, you know, Jesus and stuff. So he's contrasting those two. I think it's going to be very compelling. Yeah. I mean, based on like two tweets that I've seen from this guy, like I, I think he's got way more, he'll, he'll get, get way more popular support than somebody like Nikki Haley, in my opinion. We'll we'll see, we'll see how things play out. But I, yeah, she seems like a, like propped up, not far from a, a grassroots type of candidate. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't think people are going to buy that. Do you want to do a thing on her foreign policy? It was the way she answered the Ukraine question. Sure. Check it out. I thought that was fun. You need a strong military to prevent wars. But you know what? We have the backs of our friends and we hold our enemies to account. And, you know, whether it's Ukraine or Israel, we take care of them because it's about freedom. And we can never stop fighting for freedom. There is that popular strain and a lot of MAGA that wants the Ukraine gravy train financially and otherwise to stop. And even there's a growing Republican consent, not consensus, but growing Republican support to say, wait a minute, checks and balances here. What are we doing giving all this money to Ukraine? Where do you come down on the money, on the the military, uh, whether it be fighter jets, X, Y, and Z? Biden was slow to the take. He should have given Ukraine what they needed right when this started. And we'd be in a totally different place right now. This isn't a war about Ukraine. This is a war about freedom. And I don't think we need to put troops on the ground. I don't think we need to write them blank checks. But they have the passion to fight for their own freedom. Give them the ammunition to do it. Get with our NATO allies and say, hey, we're not the only ones. You've got to do it, too. And let them win this fight. But I'll tell you what, if they win this fight, you won't hear anything from Russia, China or Iran. If they lose this fight, Russia's not going to stop at Ukraine. They're going to go into Poland and the Baltics, and we've got a world war on our hands. We have to make sure we send a message to every enemy that if you mess with our friends, you're messing with us, and you don't want to do that. And, and that, therefore, is America first, in essence. It is taking is care saying. of America because we're preventing wars. Right. right. <laughs> I'm I just, sorry. I, that last bit just got me. I wonder how much uh, how much that reporter's back hurts from carrying her through the question. Ooh. Literally just... <laughs> Ugh, come on his knees probably hurt from squatting to, to lob up the softballs <laughs> uh, the the contradictions in that are so plentiful uh, we're gonna we're gonna crush the american taxpayer for freedom shut the it's fuck. a war for freedom i mean okay great that's awesome but they've made it abundantly clear it's not about freedom it's about weakening russia it's not about ukrainian freedom uh, and i think i mean i don't know to say that they can win this fight i think is totally and completely naive like there's no winning this fight because the end game is nukes and no yeah. one wins with nukes. Yeah. What do you think? I want to make the point that the intelligence state wins either way here, right? If they pull out, they'll say, and Russia wins, they'll say, well, we should have never pulled out. If it stalemates, they're going to say, well, this is the best deal we could have got. You got to take a step back and get out of the weeds of the initial moment we're in and and just realize that the U.S. intelligence state has the incentive to use Ukrainians to bleed Russia. That's the point. We've reviewed documents from the Rand Corporation, for example, that make exactly this point. Other statements from the president that make exactly this point, that the point is to fight the war, not win the war. Now, we make this claim while we make the other claims, and we pick and choose the one that fits our, our books uh, after the fact. When If you take a step back and we think, like, why aren't we trying to do diplomacy? Why aren't we trying to get people to the table and negotiate 
and figure this thing out because this could have this this all has already been done. We've already negotiated. It was called Minsk. The Minsk Accords itself was already this thing, and then and then Ukraine did an enforcement, and maybe Russia wasn't totally honest about it, and then we allowed this thing to escalate to this point, and we're continuing the escalation. She's going to cause World War Three while claiming to to stop World War Three from ever happening. We'll never live in the world where World War Three never happened because she didn't do the thing that she wanted to do. That's the frustrating thing. I mean, she's literally setting up a thing where she can win no matter what the circumstances because she's making contradictory claims. Absolutely. And just for the sake of clarity, because we've mentioned it a few times in past episodes, can you just give us a top level view of the Minsk Accords and what those are? Oh, it was a it was a uh, negotiation between Russia, Ukraine, uh, set in France uh, and Germany uh, to to bring together to negotiate the violence in the Donbass, which has going been going on for a very long time. Uh, to try to stop the what was happening, which was essentially a Ukraine paramilitary slash not paramilitary, uh, maybe ties with the West, ties with Western powers, um, th- you know, very dangerous, scary battalions like the Az- Azov, Azov, Azov Azov battalion uh, that were conducting effectively an anti-Russian war in eastern Ukraine uh, for years and years and years before uh, the invasion. Uh, there are two different Minsk Accords. Uh, each time we would come together and try to enforce, and they never got enforced on the Ukrainian side because there was an impossible political situation there where, you know, if if you're the president and you come in and say, hey, paramilitary groups, stop it, they would just keep doing their thing, and you would have to, you, you would have to go attack your own core of your own army to stop them from happening, uh, from doing what they were doing. Uh, meanwhile, Donbass is trying to leave into the Russian Federation uh, to join... Then they literally did a citizens initiative to do that. And Russia said no. Uh, so like there was a, and some people say that that was because he wasn't ready to fight the war yet. Other people say that this was a, a question of uh, the Donbass wanting to, you know, basically get more Russian support. Other people say that Russia has been supporting the Donbass the whole time and moving weapons and, and training and things like that there too. Maybe possibly. We don't know. Um, the question is, is like, we have never, we have never, we have not for since 2004 been in a situation where we're trying to encourage peace diplomacy and cooperation we've been driving this direction for a very long time to try to get more conflict with russia that's why we tore up the the ballistic missile treaty that we talked about earlier that's why we've been uninterested in trying to drive out more aggressive de, uh, you know de-escalation of nuclear weapons and things like that in, in europe so i i don't know i i this is why i see her as being such a, a tool of that particular component of the uh of the political sphere for the interventionist part of the republican party and why she might be advanced or pushed forward with funding and things to sort of carry on that agenda. Because she's saying the right things that I think we're going to be better compelling to that part of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. whether or not she's got grassroots support or not. Yeah, I, I mean, I just it's similar to, you know, Kamala was was propped up by that side and, you know, she got one primary vote. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I feel like that's what we're looking at here. I, I hope you're right. This uh, we shall see we're fighting for their freedom just reminds me of, of Iraq. Yeah. Um, do we want to drop into the news on masks? Oh, yeah. This is kind of an interesting, uh, well, I don't want to even really call it a bombshell because it sort of is just confirming in the most robust way what a lot of people suspected, what a lot of other smaller studies have suggested along the way. But um, this study done recently, and, and you know more about it, David, um, concludes i think pretty pretty handily that physical interventions to interrupt or reduce the spread of respiratory viruses are essentially completely ineffective basically what it said is on a macro scale 
and this and, and I, I did I, I had a little bit about the qualifications of the study. You should check. You should read those out. Sure. Um, but the on a macro scale, it basically says they did nothing. Mask regimes did nothing. On an individual scale, it doesn't speak to that. It might help a singular person at some point or some juncture uh, not get COVID when they otherwise would. It's not making that claim. It's just looking at the uh, larger question of as policy, uh, did it work? And um, it's, yeah, of course, the credentials of the study really matter. Yeah. And so the the New York Times summarized the findings of this study. Uh, Here's a quote. They said, quote, there is just no evidence that they masks make any difference. He told the journalist Marianne DeMasi, full stop. And this is from Oxford. Uh, very reputable. Uh, this guy is an epidemiologist. He's right at the top of the world when it comes to this question. Uh, this study is very important. Now, one of the things here is it doesn't mean that individuals shouldn't mask. Right? It doesn't mean that individuals, you know, we should say no masking and use that as government policy. What it means is that when we abuse the idea of science and we say science will inform what public policy is because it can navigate the question of value to such a degree that we just know what the right thing to do is because science told us uh, that's that's hubris, right? That's a that's a mistake. We didn't know. We made a guess. We made the wrong guess. A lot of people suffered for it, uh, and it's a it, it's our, our risk aversion was much and our hubris was much greater than our ability to navigate the the complexities of the real world in this case. Yeah, and so going forward, I mean, stands to reason that this would hopefully stand as a barrier to future mandates of this kind, would you think? Uh, hopefully. I mean, it, we're always going to get science is going to cherry pick, and we're going to get good faith and bad faith. Who knows? This might be a bad one. Who knows? But what we want is a situation where we can navigate that using free speech. That's the critical role of how science and free speech actually evolved code next to each other. Science is an idea of duplication and study that checks on itself and has a system of speech across, you know, the domain that then hopefully the best ideas rise to the top out of that competitive checking on each other's math and, and work and experimentation. Now, when it comes to public policy, we can't do that, right? Because we'll never live in the world where America didn't shut down, right? We'll always live in the world where there was a mixture, where America shut down a lot and shut down quite a bit, uh, but not as much as other some states and not and in, in, in more than others. Um I think there is the question is like, what will we decide is the lesson of COVID? And I think what I hope the lesson is, is that the FDA isn't a king, right? The CDC is not a king where we don't live in a tyranny. We live in a republic where individuals negotiate their own values of safety. Uh, And we try to minimize third party effects. We try to do what we can to educate people about the realities of these things so that people can make the best decision for them, their families, and their business, but that the government shouldn't play a role of set, setting everybody what the right policy is because who knows what the secondary order consequences are going to be. Well, and it doesn't seem like we're really headed in that direction, though, and I hesitate to even bring this up because I don't have anything about it in front of me. Kyle, maybe you can help me out here, but there is a new treaty being drafted, right, with multiple countries giving authority for future pandemic response over to the World Health Organization. And I've been seeing swirling of this happening for, you know, a handful of weeks, but it does not seem like a trend in the direction of autonomy when it comes to pandemic response. Something like that would would override, would supersede the authority of any national government to set their own pandemic policy and would set it at an international level, which doesn't make much sense to me on its face at all and, and certainly doesn't empower individuals to, to be autonomous in their in their response to that. What are your thoughts? 
I mean, I, I, it doesn't really strike me as as news that you know government mandates are ineffective. Um, and I also would agree that I don't think that this is going to be persuasive to the people who are in favor of that sort of thing. You know, I, I don't know if you guys saw like ChatGPT. Somebody asked ChatGPT to like give social credit scores to certain individuals and. Anthony Fauci was the one that received the highest credit score. Are you serious? Jordan Peterson received the lowest credit score. Obviously. Uh, Elon Musk was the second lowest credit score. <laughs> um, you know, and it was, it was all these government officials who were part of the mask regime uh, that, that received the higher credit scores. You know, so, I mean, they're not going to pay attention to, to a study like this, unfortunately. And, yeah, it's, it's the sort of thing, too, where it's like, well, here's a study. And then they're going to say, well, here's another study. You know, so... I don't know. We're not we're not uh, epidemiologists, but I mean, we are libertarians and and that's we, the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but I mean, like we don't need a study to, to to say that this is unjust to, you know, invade people's rights like that, to invade on people's freedoms, you know, to use such a, a spurious uh, cause to to do so. Yeah. I mean, if, if we were really being honest, like COVID was something that was truly harmful to the elderly and to obese populations and, you know, to force all of America to, to comply with mass mandates, you know, whether you're sitting in your house or on a beach somewhere or whatever. And they, they you know, they did this kind of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely absurd, but there are still people who are walking around in mass today and you show them this article, they're going to call you a right wing extremist. You know, so. Yeah. So, as I've heard it put recently, COVID broke some people, like completely just snapped them from any degree of risk tolerance, like you put it, you know, where everything now is too dangerous. And, and you know, it's a sad thing to see because it's how do you how do you ever come back from that? What happens to their kids? What happens to, you know, future generations beyond that? It's kind of a crazy thing. I, I think. You guys have any final thoughts on that? For uh, I looked up your your tree here. Oh, that's right. That was you, God. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it, it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's the intergovernmental negotiating body um, established by the World Health Assembly, and the final draft is supposed to be ready be, by May 2024, and it's supposed to be this flexible living document that, oh, um, which there, there's an interesting terminology there with like it's like a, its own constitution basically. But yeah, no, you're you're correct, Joe. Interesting. Perhaps more on that as I guess new things develop there, but yeah, certainly not a trend in the right direction. Um, and you know what else isn't a trend in the right direction? This video that we're gonna uh, that we're gonna respond to here in a second. Um, Henri, do you want to tee this one up while I while I get it ready? Uh, yeah. So Chelsea Handler, um, a very I guess successful comedian throughout the last couple of you know fifteen years or whatever, has had a a show. Um, this was a segment. Apparently, she's hosting the Daily Show. I didn't even know this. I mean, it just goes to show like how far the Daily Show has fallen from uh, you know the days when I mean, think what you will about John Stewart, but he was kind of like the go-to source for political commentary for a lot of people, but certainly like political comedy. You know, it was actually funny, and they 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 brought on a lot of people from different perspectives. I mean, they had Ron Paul on there at one point. Um, yeah, so so now this is what the Daily Show is putting out. This is a uh, uh, a video about the joys of being a childless woman, um, 
it's pretty hilarious. I, I feel like most people. Well, have it's, seen it, it's hilarious in, in how how cringy it is. Yeah, it's. it's but yeah, I mean, certainly that. Certainly that. Yeah. Let's let's take a look. This is a day in the life of a childless woman. I wake up at 6 a.m. I remember that I have no kids to take to school, so I take an edible, masturbate, and go back to sleep. I wake up at 12.30 p.m. and get ready for a busy day of doing whatever the f*** I feel like. I put on my most impractical and stylish shoes since I won't be chasing a child around the grocery store. I go to my fave spot in Paris to grab a croissant. I do a meditation sesh on the plane since I have no screaming kids, allowing me all the time in the world to become enlightened. The weightlessness of my existence has granted me superhuman powers. I teleport myself back home. Then I get ready for a night out with whatever hot guy I met on Raya that morning. I call up a babysitter and tell her that I don't need her since I still don't have kids. Now it's time for a workout, so I hit Mount Everest for a quick climb. I invent a time machine, go back in time, and kill Hitler. Freeze, you bastard! It's amazing what you can do when you have this much free time. And that's a day in the life of a childless woman. Oh. Dude, it's so narcissistic and just like self-centered and delusional beyond belief, and I mean uh, offensive, insulting to to women who have children, and I mean this is not at all representative of anything you know uh, that most women who don't have children experience clearly. And I mean, like you know, just like going back to the start of the video, like she wakes up and she masturbates and eats, you know, takes some drugs, like that's. <laughs> And that then is, achieves enlightenment later in the day. Don't forget. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that is not even like desirable. You know, I mean, it's not like living the good life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever your version of the good life is, if that's it, like great power to you. Right. Awesome. Yeah. My favorite part, if I may say, was the form at the end. That was okay. <laughs> that's, like, that's what dude. I want to talk about. <laughs> dude, Triangles guys. Like that. Triangles guys. What is this? <laughs> what is this? It was like some sort of like dance crew move. Yeah, like <laughs> did she think she had a flashlight underneath? Because that's was that what she was doing? Like from the they using that's not this. That's <laughs> yeah. all right. That's all right. She obviously hasn't handled very many firearms in her yeah, life. Although that's you know, the you offensive think she, part. If she not, had so much time on her hands, she could spend some time at the range. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got enough time. Go to the range. <laughs> Learn how to use a firearm, kids. Yeah, that, that, that is so frustrating. <laughs> I have no problem with women who decide not to have kids, of course. That is their decision as free individuals to go do that. 100%. Celebrating it even and saying, this, I love my lifestyle and that's what I want to do. And I, obviously, this is a joke, right? Yeah, she's, so. she's spoofing. That said, I, I, just a public service announcement. I'm the one here with kids. Having children is the most meaningful thing you will do in your life, period. Not having kids. The moment that, the moment that you, before you have kids, it's like describing to someone what puberty is like after you've gone through puberty and they haven't. Right, you go to a ten year old and they tell them what it's like to be an adult, and they're like, "Huh, huh?" It sounds right. They, yeah, like right. It sucks. So weird. I don't understand it. After you've had kids, it's like going through puberty. You've com you're a completely different human being. Everything has changed. Your brain has rewired. Everything is different. So, I just I, and I'm not saying that I'm not trying to shame her or anyone who's childless and 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 wants that for their life. But I do want to encourage people to think very carefully about that decision. And make sure it comports to their actual values and, 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 and understanding there's a lot of things, there's a veil there that you can't see the other side of until you get there. And some of them, and I, and I will say as someone who has, 
some of the most meaningful experiences in your life are on the other side of that veil. So, yeah. I mean, it well, can only be said uh, by someone with kids. You know? <laughs> like I, I want to know what's on the other side of that veil. I yeah. look forward to that. Yeah. You know? Imagine being immortal. It's kind of what it's like. Yeah, that, that, right? that's your your legacy walking around, right? Mm-hmm. That's the the future of your whole existence. Right. You pour yourself into that. When you die, there's not you, you'll have a couple of palm bearers who are going to remember you for the length of their life. And they might be live beyond you a couple years, maybe even a couple dozen. But your your children and your grandchildren will be decades and decades, maybe even hundreds of years of remembering who you are, of being meaningful in someone else's life. That is something worth living for. That is something worth investing in and thinking carefully about uh, when you're if you're deciding to to have kids. Um, and I think more people should. I think a lot of people are delaying. You know, having kids so later and later and later, and it becomes harder and harder uh, for folks to uh, conceive, and they're and they're missing out. Um, I don't think they realize what they're missing out on. Uh, we have a lot of things that say how inconvenient it is. There's a selfishness there that I think is is real. Um, but I, I I also understand that you know some people just don't want that life, and and or some people can't have kids, and and they want to they want to feel affirmed in that. And I'm totally there for that too. I think uh, for for folks who can't. Uh, have my utmost sympathies and I hope that they uh, can find a way around that because it, it, it is a, a real meaningful, important thing. Uh, cause you're, you're, you're put on this planet. You are here. You're in a mammal. You're a species that reproduces just, just by saying, I'm never going to do that core part of, you know, what it means to be a live yeah. animal species on this planet. You're missing out on something really big. You're also yeah. missing out on the opportunity to teach your kids not to shoot like this. <laughs> right. Triangles, guys. Triangles. Yeah. Well, and and They're it's down. not like it's uh, you know makes you a bad person if if you don't want to have kids. But I think that there's a you know there's a part of this that it's it's the the entertainment industry, the media at large, has been pushing people, uh, encouraging people, you know, making it sound like you know overpopulation is this big problem. You're a bad person if you have kids. Like mm-hmm. I think that's the other side of this. Yeah. Is is that this is this isn't about you know supporting women who don't have kids it's about sort of you know making you making it look like all all parenthood is about is chasing kids around the grocery store you know and not getting to wear your favorite style of shoes and and all this other you know stupid bullshit that she's (laughs) saying here and i mean yeah it's 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 not about that like you know i I don't have kids yet and you know I'm, i'm i'm on that path like um and I'm very much looking forward to like those those rewarding moments, you know that that I think Chelsea Handler is is in fact actually coping here that she's missed out on. I mean, like this idea that uh, she's about to get pregnant at some point any, anyway. I mean, what is she like sixty? Like you know, like let's let's be real. I have no idea how old if she she's is. sixty. I, she I looks wanna, really good. I do want to like actually diving into the important thing there. Uh, overpopulation is not a problem. The lack of ability to replace existing people is a huge problem. Uh, you got to check out, if you're really interested in this issue, uh, the population bomb Paul Ehrlich written in the 1970s predicted this huge population problem. Uh, there's actually a, a, a Kersnet's curve to population, too. The more wealthy you get, the less kids you have. So what's happened is, is, is the West become more populated. We've had less and less kids, and we actually have a depopulation problem. Uh, planning for infrastructure to grow is relatively easy compared to re- planning for infrastructure to shrink. Because uh, to think about it, you got to put a pipe in the ground this big, and then you got to replace it with a pipe this big in order to maintain pressure. Really simple pedestrian problem gets very complicated on scale, and when it comes to actually being able to service people in a shrinking uh, uh, in a shrinking world. Uh, additionally, that 
the uh, the Abundance Index by the Cato Institute does a great job assessing how much how much gross product does a person make in their lifetime per extra person added. And every person put on this planet in the West, when you have good institutions and solid institutions, they create more than they take. Meaning everyone is a one. If you make less than one, if a 0.9, then you actually are taking. If you make over one, everyone is a 1.17 across the entire globe. And if you can go in very industrial countries, it's much higher than that, one point, much higher. Um, I might have the numbers right there, Kyle. I want to check me. But I'm sorry, I was just fact checking Henri that Chelsea Handler is in fact forty seven. But, <laughs> but there might be some cope there. Hey, she looks right. great. Well, she's still good. not having kids anytime. As Don Levin would menopause, say, she's, so. she's over the hill. As Don Lemon would say. Speaking of coping, Don Lemon. Well, that uh, was some, that was a wild one yeah. last week. Oh yeah. man, Don Lemon, what a goofball! Someone has yeah. to fill in that Andrew Tate void. <laughs> Jeez, well, is she the female Andrew Tate? Is that the next way to talk about it? No, never mind. I don't know how we segue these two, but we're going to end on a, on a white pill note as we always do, as is becoming the tradition for this show, uh, and, and pivot back from, from our cultural escapades into, uh, a little bit of activism. This is pretty cool. This guy shows up to his local, uh, town hall with representative Richie Torres, uh, in New York and, uh, and really starts speaking some truth to this guy, uh, encouraging him to investigate the Nord Stream situation and uh, good start. (laughs) It's a really, I think it's a really great example. Like you said earlier, Dave of um, before we started recording of what people should feel empowered to do and kind of what our small mission is here is to sort of help folks feel empowered with information and good arguments to be able to go to these events and speak their minds and challenge their representatives and other authorities to provide us the representation that they are supposed to provide and that we deserve. So we're going to just watch this one real fast. Cy Hirsch just released the fact that the United States blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You weren't briefed on that. Why not? Are you going to put a congressional probe into that? Yes or no? Because this ain't no ordinary journalist. You know that. So, oh, I want to hear what he has to say. Nord Stream, Nord Stream is a pipeline that transfers oil from Europe, particularly Germany. I'm sorry, from Russia to Germany. So we don't have the authority to investigate pipelines. All right, come on. Now that's bullshit. You know that. Victoria Nuland herself says she's happy that it's a pile of metal underwater. Do you share her sentiment? Here's what we know. The Europeans are conducting an investigation. They investigated. And it is true. Why did Joe Biden say that we are going to get rid of the Nord Stream pipeline? And when asked, but wait a minute, that's run by Gazprom in Germany. How are you going to do it? He said, we'll be able to do it. If you have definitive evidence. Yeah, we do. It's called Cy Hirsch. Then produce the evidence. He already already produced the evidence. Already read the article. Listen, this is this is Cy Hirsch. This is the My Lai Massacre. Okay, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He is not going to publish something he can't prove. 
So unless you're naive enough and you don't know that, I'm here to inform you. I'm at least asking for congressional inquiry into whether or not it's true, because his credibility alone should prompt that, don't you think? He gets in and he starts talking about Israel and a whole bunch of other stuff, and that's not important. But what I think is really big here is this moment where this guy is just saying, hey, this is important, and this is what I really care about. And that politician, I don't care how jaded by D.C. you are, if you're having that moment at a town hall when someone stands up and say, hey, what about this thing? And he gives you some crazy answer like, we can't investigate the actions of a U.S. president because it happened in Germany. That's an insane proposition. Like, that is so crazy. That's a, that's a terrible response. Prompting that terrible response is excellent because that makes him now accountable to that standard of I need to respond. I need to come up with a response that's more satisfactory to my constituents or I'm not going to keep my power. This guy is a baller, and I'm so excited about that. I mean, that sort of a- action, and we should have every politician have to account for, are you going to call for a congressional investigation or not? Now, you could do some with some more you know, decorum. He doesn't, you don't have to be this aggressive, and it's very intimidating to get up in front of a crowd and say that. But just getting up there and say, hey, Cy Hirsch said this on camera, will you support a congressional investigation? Because, I mean, we, that kind of pressure is what creates change. And that's, a, that's exactly, I've been reading his, his biography, that's what happened in terms of Watergate, too, in terms of my lie, was there was initial reports that were mostly that mostly based upon anonymous sources and, and, and not necessarily all smoking gun evidence was right off the bat. And it was three years of investigations, including congressional ones, that caused the prompt, the difference. Now, now when it comes to the Watergate, you had a split party, right? You had the Senate con- being controlled by Democrats and the president who was conducting Watergate and doing these things were Democrat. You couldn't get that when LBJ was in office because there wasn't congressional investigations because the Democrats didn't want to investigate their own. Mm-hmm. Right. So like in order, you can make this story bigger. You can individual listening to this just by publishing it on your Facebook page. Say, Hey, this is, this is important and interesting. And when people say, Hey, it's got anonymous sources saying, Hey, we have to protect sources because this is the, the deepest of the deep state. If you're out there having dialogue about this, every drop counts. Every flood that was ever made was made out of a single raindrop. You just got to be one of those, be willing to be one of those raindrops. Great way to wrap it up. And just to, uh, for those listening um, or watching, we'll throw a link to this video in the show notes um, so you can get after it. And, and I think, you know, to your point, David, uh, this video here has 236 or 38,000 views just on this one alone. I'm sure this has been published other places. It's this one guy with an iPhone going viral that puts pressure on a representative like Richie Torres and others. So the more of that, the merrier, and that's what we're here to help with. Another good episode. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. And I appreciate you for watching and listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Peace. Peace out. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. 